Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Another week of Pac 12 football in the books. And before we get to all the action, we have a new sponsor, and it's the Cardiologist Association of America. Because after this weekend of college football, my resting heart rate is at like 135 beats per minute right now, and I don't know what else to do about it. Andrew Hobner, welcome. We're excited to, to – I don't know if we're excited, but we are here to talk about Pac-12 football um, and, and amped up as always. How you doing? I hope the Cardiologists Association of America can mend broken hearts because I had such high expectations for this conference. Every year I do this to myself. This is the year the recruiting has gotten better, but the same old coaches are still in this conference and they still can't beat Mountain West teams. And here we are in week three with one ranked team like the 2019 ACC, Jonathan. I don't know how to feel anymore. I'm dead inside. You're dead. All right. Well, let's see if we can let's see if we can rile you up some emotion and some feeling again. Because I right. also tried to uh, to to traverse away from the apathetic approach. It's a lot easier to feel nothing than to be sad right now. Um, and like you said, you know, it's funny. I was I was texting with our colleague Ryan Leaf, and and he said Pac-12 schools would not f- compete in the the Mountain West Conference. And I said, well, there is one. And he said, you're just being a homer. The problem is, is that it just so happens that the school that I went to or that I went to for college is also the only last long-standing half-decent football program in this conference. And I don't know if I can even enjoy it because my investment has now turned into Pac-12 uh, solvency, if you will. Well, the funny thing is, is that this show provides the balance of Pac-12 homerism because if you are the Oregon guy talking about the top of this conference, I am the Colorado guy talking about how it's terrible. And how everything is terrible. So it's not going to be a homerish broadcast because we have both <laughs> the literal both ends of the spectrum of one team that's in the playoff discussion and the other whose offense might be a war crime. I'm not All quite right. positive. So, so let's start out with that 30 nothing Minnesota victory in Buffalo. Um, you said that you kind of feel dead inside. Maybe we'll, with this elicit some feeling, albeit negatory. Um, <laughs> Minnesota gets their first shutout since like 2007. Their running back, who's a star, went down two weekends ago, and yet they still find a way to put up points against Oregon, or excuse me, against Colorado. I love Shiv, and I am so scared that he will not be the offensive coordinator at this university by the time this season is over. He shouldn't be. He should be fired. Like, I, there's, no, I'm just saying, like, and I know that's extremely spicy to come out of the gate with, but. We have seen from Darren Shaverini at this point, we've seen three years of what this offense looks like. And every year there's issues of regression. Every year there is issues of stagnancy. There are issues of players not developing and scheming players via route concepts and schematically placing them in positions to succeed. And he just hasn't done that. And his strength lies in being a recruiter. The toughest thing about what's happened at Colorado, especially with him, is that you've taken him out of the position to be on the road and a consistent recruiter. So you take away his best skill, and then you put him in a position where you can make an argument that he got Peter principled into that job that, you know, there's just, I, I don't, I don't think there's much of a path anymore unless things change drastically and change fast. And you couple that in with the fact that a couple of years, you know, last year, Mel Tuck leaves 
And, you know, he's kind of openly campaigning on Twitter for the job and riling up the fans to be the head coach. And that rubbed a lot of folks the wrong way because it was seen as a me over we in regards to a Colorado program that very much needed a conciliatory person in that position, as opposed to somebody who looked at the chaos and said, I'm, I'm going to go, you know, full little finger, little finger here and like try and, you know, climb the chaos ladder up to the top. Um, so he's, you know, he's got a goodwill problem with a lot of the Colorado fan base and look, the offensive coordinator is always the least liked guy in college football. But the problem is, is you can't put a seven point performance against Texas A&M and a zero point performance against Minnesota up and, and, you know, hang your hat and call it a day and blame it all on your quarterback. I mean, there is Brendan Lewis. Does he have some very major glaring problems? He sure does, but I've seen worse quarterbacks be built up, you know, by their coaching staffs. And I've seen coordinators insulate their quarterbacks better than what he's doing right now. So I, I've liked Darren Chevrini for a very long time, but if this doesn't get shaped up and shaped up quick, two, three weeks into Pac-12 play, yeah, you probably aren't going to see him at the end of the year. And frankly, if the offense continues to look the way it does, it's hard to see how that's an unwarranted position too. Yeah, it's also making the position that much more unattractive, which is it felt like when Ravel came in that this team was was on the uh, – and I said Ravel thinking Darren Ravel because we just said Darren, and I realized now that that is the – Carl Durrell. Carl <laughs> Durrell. You know what's crazy is that with alliteration, it's not that too far off. No, um, it's, it's not. The, the ADHD brain that I possess. Yeah. Anyways, um, but but – it felt like this was a program. Mel Tucker went to Michigan State, and people almost scoffed. Like Colorado could be on the ups, could be a better program. Um, you know, they they outputted Lavisca Chenault that season. They had a couple of good defensive players, and it seemed like they were turning it around. And then all of a sudden, it's a team with Jack Norrie, a quarterback who never was really a quarterback prior to that. We saw what happened in that situation, and now here we are. And all of a sudden, the, the narrative surrounding Colorado has regressed back to what it was prior uh, to Mel Tucker leaving. And it's just, I don't know, it feels like they're stuck in a loop and it worries me. Well, the the tricky thing is, is that they needed to bring in someone stable. Like they, they had a catch 22 when Mel Tucker left. You're too late in the process to be able to uh, hit a slam dunk higher, right? Like you couldn't take a, a Jamie Chadwell or, you know, Billy Napier would never come West, you know, after his experience. But like you couldn't take like a Jamie Chadwell, for instance, and say, that's that guy's going to come here this late into the process. I mean, Mel Tucker left them in the lurch at a really, really bad time in the cycle. And more than anything else, Carl Durrell presented stability to them. And that I think was the most important thing was if we swing on another coach and a second coach leaves us after a year, this program's never going to recover from that. So they took a, they looked at a guy like Carl um, at, you know, Carl and said, all right, he's, he's a guy who we don't think is going to leave you know, for the duration of his contract. That also means there's a reason he's not leaving is there's other programs that aren't going to take him. Um, Mel Tucker left because there wasn't institutional support for what he was trying to do. And, you know, he was doing plenty of things under the table that would have gotten them in trouble later on down the road. But he lost out on two defensive back recruits that ended up at Oregon State because they couldn't pass the admission standard when it had been made clear to him when he was hired that some of those 
pieces that have been prohibitive to Colorado in the past would be relaxed to get those guys in. And when he realized that the board of regents and the administration were going back on some of those promises, then you couple that with Michigan state throwing a bag at him. It made it very obvious. Like, of course he's going to leave Colorado for that job. Um, And so the problem for the Buffaloes right now is that you've got a guy who's, who lends himself to stability, but, and, and that's great, but you have to be realistic about what exactly this program is and what is it realistically going to give you? You know, I don't think anybody at Oregon state, for instance, right now has any delusions about going back to the Erickson years of 10, 11 wins a season. Like that's just not going to happen, but Oregon state fans, I think would be fine with a Mike Riley 2.0, given what their program has been six, six to eight wins every year. And then maybe once every five, you get like a 10, nine, 10 win team in there like that. If, if you're Colorado, that should be what you're asking for is a, a team that's six, seven wins, year in, year out, and then, you know, every now and then you can go win a lot of games with the right group of kids. And um, or Jonathan Smith can do that at Oregon State, I think. I think we're going to see them be better than we all thought this year, given the state of the Pac-12. But Colorado's in that position where Carl Durrell, I don't think, is that guy. I think this defense is great under Chris Wilson, and that's something that you want to look at and keep. But this offense is not going to put you in positions to win. And unless something changes drastically – then you're basically in the same feedback loop that you've been in since Dan Hawkins got here, which is mediocrity teetering on complete collapse. And as a Buff fan, that's what it's always been for me in my time rooting for the team, save for one rise here in 2016. Um, so it's it's just, it's tricky there. You know, it's not in really fertile recruiting ground. They historically recruited Texas. They leave the Big 12. Then you got to restart in California. And so there's there's a lot of different things with that school, that area, that establishment, it's a Broncos state. Like it's, it's a big haul to make that program into something again. And it's just, it's hard to find positives from what's going on in Boulder right now. <laughs> they got to fix it and they got to fix it quick. That's all I can say. Yeah. Goose egg against Minnesota. Uh, definitely trending in the right direction for the buffs from Colorado. So they're one and two on the season. Um, we'll preview their weekend matchup in the, um, end of the week episode here on believe in the pac 12 uh let's go through the rest of the losses what's what's worse okay this colorado loss was really bad right it was really really bad but it wasn't the worst. it was it wasn't even the top bottom three losses in the conference nau coming back to beat arizona arizona was up 13 nothing and lost uh jake hayner being the best quarterback in the nation against ucla <laughs> Um, in that Fresno State victory and the Arizona State BYU loss. Now, the Arizona State BYU loss is only bad for the conference because, as you mentioned in your open, there's only one ranked team left in, in the Pac-12. And for this conference to run on its credibility, it's important to have these ranked schools. So aesthetically, it's not good for the conference. But I think that BYU is a better team than Arizona State. They have some boys. And also, Arizona State has bricks for hand. So um, it, it, it wasn't as shocking to me or it didn't feel as devastating as the UCLA, even the Colorado loss or um, the Arizona loss, the Arizona loss just feels demoralizing because I felt like, come on, man, it's NAU. You haven't lost to them since 1936. You have recruits from places that NAU has never touched before. I don't understand how at home you're up 13, nothing. And you go on to drop a goose egg the rest of the game and lose to a team again that hasn't beaten an FBS school in like almost a hundred years. Well, this is the problem. And you know, I said it a couple of weeks ago on Twitter. This is the problem when you don't have quarterbacks in conference. 
I mean, Arizona doesn't have a quarterback. They haven't had a quarterback all year. I think they got down to their third string guy against NAU. And, you know, Gunner Gunner Cruz was a no. Well, Plummer was a no. Third guy comes in and you're still running into the same issues. I mean, it's, without a doubt, the NAU loss is the worst one of the weekend because as bad as Arizona is and is going to be this year, there's no justification for losing to an FCS team. If you're a power five school, there's just not. You know, that Washington win is the worst loss that I have seen in the Pac-12 in a while. And for some reason, out in the Pac-12, this stuff just seems to happen with more frequency and regularity than it does anywhere else. Like a North Dakota state might come in and beat an Iowa or a Kansas state like they did a few years ago, but that was in the middle of North Dakota state's run where they were winning like 50 straight games over three seasons and winning a national championship in the FCS every year, steamrolling the competition in the process. Like 2010, I think, or 11, Oregon state is like a number 10 team in the country. They lose to Eastern Washington, you know, Colorado had lost to Sac state. I think my freshman year there were 2012 this year, uh, Washington loses to Montana, Arizona loses to NIU. This type of stuff should not be happening in this conference, and it does too often. And it's not acceptable to be doing that and to allow that kind of thing to happen. And it also is one of these things that kills student enthusiasm. And, you know, my point for the Colorado game is the same for the Arizona game, which is if you are a coach in a new regime and you're trying to build up enthusiasm, there's certain benchmark games you have to win. And you have to win in, a, in an aesthetically pleasing way because freshmen and sophomores in college, their first view of your program is how they're going to look at you forever. And so for the class of 2020 at Colorado, that fan base of students was amazing all the way through, regardless of how they did in the ensuing three, four years, because their first season as freshmen was the rise year, was 10 and two Pac-12 championship year. And those kids, as juniors and seniors, even in their head, whether they know it or not, they're going back to these games thinking, well, you know, we're, we're going to be good. You know, like we're going to be a good team. But do I Arizona State students never have that perception? Like they're, no. already, they're, they're dejected before the season even started. Well, you but guys that, just had inspired hope. Sure. But Jed Fish, the argument is Jed Fish spent this whole summer on the barnstorming tour building that, you know, like okay, getting. Okay, but then everybody's. And they actually thought that this team was going to be good. So so the placebo effect just didn't catch on then. Because well, we it all... it's not even about them being and good though. Like you just you gotta you gotta win one. They shouldn't have to go around over the summer parading about how their premier win of the season is gonna be NAU, even though it wasn't. But but that's what I'm saying. Like this team, it's it's sort of we'll get to this later with USC, but it's like this this team is so bad at marketing itself, right? And, and on top of that, like the expectations are already so low that like, it's, I don't know. I just like, this is a, you're right. There's no excuse for an FCS team to beat an FBS, team, especially in the power of five, but we saw Eastern Tennessee beat Vanderbilt. We saw Jacksonville state beat Florida state, which is apparently Jacksonville state is just the eater of FBS schools. Cause I don't know if you remember, really? they beat a top 25 Auburn team a few years ago as well. Um, then and on Washington and we can go and Eastern Washington and UC Davis had be Tulsa like there are more an abundance of FCS wins this year more so than we've seen in the past. It's unfortunate that the big ones are against the the Pac-12, um, but Arizona's an FCS. Arizona's the Vanderbilt of the Pac-12. They, they're here for baseball right now. They're here for basketball. They're not here for football. They need to be here for football because this is a Power Five conference and they're in a place that has seen, albeit very limited, football success. Yeah. 
Well, here's the thing. I don't I don't think Jed Fish is running around treating NAU like it would be their their marquee win, but it's one of those games that you had to win. You had right. you have to win at least one to show your kids that you can win, right? Like if they had gone out and beaten San Diego State at home, that would have been a different thing because it would have been like, all right, they're not going to be as bad as we thought they'd be. You lose this game to NAU, you just told your fan base, we're going to be way worse than you thought, which doesn't allow kids to have yeah. the hope to come back, right? Like when, when I was at Colorado and we lost the opening Rocky Mountain Showdown game in the Embry years to Colorado State, I don't think I went back to a game that year except for a Thursday night blackout game against Arizona State, and that's because we were all like, oh, it's like across the street, we're going to get drunk and go. You know, like it's not like we're, there was no reason for us to want to go because we knew we were going to lose. And for Arizona fans, what's so catastrophic about this loss is if you had beaten NAU, at least there could have been something to trick your 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 fan base and your students into saying, come for the environment, we beat, like, we're not terrible. We might compete with some teams you never know any given Saturday. Now it's, you could have made that argument after BYU, by the way. Like, at, they played BYU tough. And then you come in, you have that whole snafu with the tickets and the, and the kids can't get in the building until, like, the third quarter. They come in, it's already, like, 35-7 to 7 at San Diego State. So they already come in and go, okay, we're getting pasted, we're out. Then you end up losing this game to NAU. Like, what reason does an Arizona State fan or Arizona fan have to go back to these games? Like, there's none. And that's what these FCS losses do. The problem with all of this is there's a trickle-down effect. When you lose to an FCS school, your kids think you suck. You don't, the kids don't show up. The stadium atmosphere suffers. The recruits look at the stadium atmosphere and go, that's not a good stadium atmosphere. I'm going to go to the SEC or Big Ten. You lose out on that top player. You don't have a good team. Then you lose to the FCS school and perpetuate the circle of suck. Like it just, it is. Oh, we're maddening. getting the cardiologist on the phone for you, Andrew. We're getting the oh cardiologist. Oh my God, I need a pacemaker. <laughs> I need a pacemaker. I like, but it's just, it's, it's insanity to me. And I don't know if this speaks to the coaching in this conference. I'm starting to think more and more that the level of coaching in the Pac-12 is just not that good, but I just don't get how every other conference doesn't have this issue. Like I, I went on the other night saying, okay, ACC big 12, like I am ready to put the Cape on and say, this is not a bad situation compared to those two conferences. Cause those conferences have the same one team covers all the blemishes type of situation, right? That's not the case. I went back and looked at the last five seasons of non-conference for the top five teams in the ACC and big 12 there were not more than five collective losses to FCS opponents. They don't drop those games. They don't lose the G5 games even. The, the games that Iowa State, Texas, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of like the other top teams, North Carolina and uh, Louisville at their peak. Those Miami. teams, yeah. My, yeah, Miami when they had the eight, nine win seasons, like those teams that were underneath Clemson and Oklahoma in like the two, three, four spot in the ACC and Big 12, the losses they had in their non-conferences, if they lost it all, were to other Power 5 teams. They didn't lose their G5 games. They didn't lose their FCS games. And that's the difference between the Pac-12 and them. The Pac-12 loses these games on the regular. And it kills them when conference starts 
because then all of a sudden they start beating up on each other. And it's a bunch of teams that finish one and two non-conference play that are beating up on the big dogs now. And that like, and that's what messes the whole experiment up. It's just a no good, very bad week, Jonathan. (laughs) I could do this Um, for hours. You made an incredible point. All right, let's finish up these losses because I want to touch back on something that you said about uh, the matriculation effect. Because the the truth is, is like if you go back and you just watch Washington's open, even in in their victory against Arkansas State this past weekend, and like they had like there was like twenty thousand, not even like twenty thousand fans there, and that was yeah, it was exactly to your point. Nobody gave a shit after the the Montana loss, Um, and and that's and that's sort of where we're gonna take this with USC in that conversation about that program and their coaching deal in a second. Let's get through uh, the rest of these Pac-12 losses really quickly here. Um, so Arizona drops it to NAU, tough loss. Um, we're going to try and – Arizona may not be – we probably shouldn't spend 30 minutes in talking about Arizona in the future because we need to talk about Utah um, and, and their interesting showing. Now, Utah, like, is, is stacking – is stacking. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a case for San Diego State just because I'm now locally in San Diego. Um, and their helmets were actually in the best in the nation, in my opinion, in that game. Um, you're playing against a team in San Diego State that doesn't have a home stadium that's playing in where the LA Galaxy plays soccer and the mm-hmm. Chargers used to play football. It's a really bad stadium. Um, Utah's playing a team that it has a bunch of veteran leadership, but none of them are like NFL caliber players, and yet they still ended up losing. Um, I think that San Diego State is. Again, this is a Mountain West school that is consistently in, in the bowl season prevalency. Um, they get good recruits. Their running back was a four-star, actually, out of here in Benita Vista in San Diego, and he ate up against Utah. Um, Utah's offense scares me. It, it does. I don't, I don't think that the offensive continuity – I think that the expectation of Utah offense – was sort of spoiled with Tyler Huntley and Zach Moss in the backfield because that was the best Utah offense that we've seen since they joined the Pac-12. Um, and that sort of set the standard. And then all of a sudden, you know, transfers coming in and, and it feels like, okay, maybe there's some solace here, but there's not. Um, and, and it took them a little bit towards the end of that game. They, they forced overtime. They forced double overtime. They forced triple overtime. This is a team that has to, that's been playing from behind. They did it last week and they lost. They did it this week and they lost. Um, it feels like they just play up and down to their opponents. That might be the Kyle Whittingham way. And this is not a team, though, that is going to be able to come down in the trenches against Pac-12 opponents at the top. Maybe there's only one in Oregon, but if when they play UCLA and then when they play USC, um, they're not going to come back in those games being down. So losing to San Diego State being down the entire way, even though they had a valiant effort in coming back, um, is a massive red flag. I know that they lost last week to BYU. BYU looks like a top 10 program right now, maybe even a top eight program. Um, and and Rom, the Romneys have 50, 50 nephews apparently. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, Utah, I, it's just one of those programs again, where it feels like they were, they were where we thought, where we saw UCLA prior to them losing to Utah or to, to Fresno mm-hmm. state. We thought that was going to be Utah in that position um, where they look like the second best team in the conference. And they don't, they don't even look like the fourth best team in the conference. So um Another big disappointment for for the Pac-12 is Utah, I think, just because, again, riding on the perception that Kyle Whittingham and that offense is painted. And by the way, the defense has been underwhelming, too. Bryce Phillips, where have you been, man? The, the biggest recruit mm. in the team history, the five-star that they took that they took away from Ohio State, has done nothing defensively. I mean, he's there, but he's not he's not shutting down receivers like Ron McKinley is shutting down Chris Olave, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. what they brought him in there to do, and he's not doing it. So, um 
Utah played a very an underrated San Diego State team. I'm not shocked that they lost. I'm very disappointed that they lost. And it's just, again, it's just another Mountain West victory against the Pac-12. And it feels it feels like that dynamic, like the what is the LA, the Jimmy Kimmel Jimmy Kimmel LA Bowl, which is the number one Mountain West team taking on the fifth best team in the Pac-12 this year. The Pac-12 yeah. is going to lose that game. They're they're, oh, yeah. they're that team is going to get smashed by the winner of the Mountain West Conference, and it probably won't even be close. And that Look, is the, a testament to where the conference is at. Well, look, the Mountain West is good. It's always good. Like, we need to stop sleeping. Like, I think nationally, everybody talks about the AAC as, like, you know, the premier G5 in the country because Dave Oresco and they and then make sure that they do the PR effort. But the Mountain West, for two decades now, has been the premier G5 behind the strength of Boise, behind the strength of Fresno State, Rocky Long at San Diego State. You know, like there's plenty of programs in there that have been really good and they trade off years where they're really good. But like Air Force has been a 10-win team at points. Like Wyoming's been eight, nine wins, which at Wyoming, that's ridiculous in the college football landscape now. Like Jim McElwain put together a 10-win season in Colorado State. San Jose State beating Arkansas. Hawaii the Mountain West Championship. Yeah, Yeah. like, you know, look, San Jose State was seven and one last year. Like, you know, this is not a scrub conference, first of all. But second of all, what it comes down to for a team like Utah and uh, and all these teams in the Pac-12, their offensive line play is horrendous. And they, for all of the bluster about punching teams in the mouth, when they get punched back, they don't know how to respond to people. They get dazed. They get rattled. I mean, Charlie Brewer is running for his life against a San Diego State defensive front, which, look, it's a very good defensive front. But you're the University of Utah. You hang your hat on your ability to play physical football. And offensively, this is the same old problem, and it's a reflection of your head coach because when you switch over multiple offensive coordinators over years and years and your offensive product looks the same, eventually you got to look a level higher at who it is that is the one hiring the coordinators and what his vision of an offense is. And that's the biggest problem on a macro scale with the Pac-12 right now. There's too many coaches in this conference in an era of offensive college football that would love seeing these games 1-10-7. They would love it. Right. And that's not how you do it anymore. You can't. And so they went up-tempo late in the game with Cam Rising and found some success. And it's like, okay, do that the rest of the year. But the question shouldn't be, why was this, you know, like, oh, great, this is the answer we got three weeks into the season. It's, if this is going to be the answer – Why was this not being done in the summer? You know, same deal with Washington. Washington goes out. Their offense looks totally different than it did the first two weeks. Kamari Pleasant and Sean McGrew finally get involved, and they wax Arkansas State 52-3. to Why did it need to take you two weeks to figure that out? How is that not figured out in camp? It's a failure of coaches in this conference that every year they don't seem to know what they have until four weeks into the season. Oregon did this last year, and I get why situationally it occurred this way without an install and all this, you know, fall camp and stuff. But you're, you're figuring out in the Pac-12 championship that Anthony Brown is a better option than Tyler Shuck. Like, why is this? Why should it take you this long? It shouldn't take Oregon State a first half against Purdue to realize Chance Nolan is the better quarterback. It cost you a game, and you lost the first week. Same deal with Stanford. Like the coaches in this conference have failed miserably 
early on in this non-conference season to identify the strengths of their team, particularly on the offensive end. And spoiler alert, with the exception of Jonathan Smith at Oregon State, all of those guys are defensive-minded coaches. You know, like, figure it out. It's an offensive era. Figure it out. Or just give the reins over to your offensive guy and get out of the way. Because that's the big problem here in the Pac-12 right now. They can't score the football in the Pac-12. The conference of offense and quarterbacks, they can't score the football anymore. Like, you know, it's like Looney Tunes, man. We're in the funhouse mirrors. It's it's wild to me. That that's a top that's a top five rant right there. Oh, Easy. Lord. Easy. Just, that was beautiful. Goodness. Um, <laughs> three weeks of this, man. We're only in you know three what they, weeks. Uh, three. Uh, uh, you know they, I mean, pride. J. Cole says it best, right? Pride is the devil. That's what this no. is. It's all pride. It's these it coaches pride. put together. They put together their depth charts. They have these recruits that they're very happy about. Unfortunately, sometimes you're wrong, and it's okay to be wrong. But adjustments have to be made if you're wrong. Instead, it's pride. You know, there's who knows even with booster pressure because kids get scholarships that they, they have mm-hmm. to play a certain amount. Oh, there's, po- yeah, there's it, politics for sure. Politics, yeah. Um, it, it's funny because one of the coaches that sort of adjusted their approach to, to defense at, in terms of sort of fo- making offense the focal point is Cristobal. He's done a really yeah. good job. In coming in, and you started talking about you know the offensive Achilles heel. I want I didn't want to talk about the Oregon was a bad it wasn't a bad game. It didn't ride much. There wasn't much riding on it. So maybe we could touch on it really quickly here because mm-hmm. I don't want to spend. I think UCLA we need to spend some more time on. Um, USC we need to spend some time on as well. Those are probably the two next big uh, conversation pieces. So let's knock this out right now. Um, Oregon Stony Brook. Oregon won. It was vanilla. There was no reason for it to be otherwise. I think Ty Thompson was in in the playbook anyways to get some reps out there. Um, it, it was a fine. It was a fine game. Anybody who's like, oh, Oregon needs to blow up. You saw. You had some responses on Twitter about this. Um, so I don't know. I don't know which which side of the teeter totter you're currently. I was going to say, on. do you want do you want me to go in on that? <laughs> I mean, I don't. I, mean, I don't. I don't know. Give us the abridged version. Give us the abridged yeah. version. Look, the only thing is, and look, they did what they needed to do in the second half. My only thing is, and you know, some people in you know our little corner decided to take a victory lap after the fact and be like, "Oh, are you okay?" Like, yeah, dude, they won forty-eight-seven. That's great. But the thing about it is, style points matter to the committee, and it's mattered for years now. And if you end up in a situation where there's five teams that are one-loss conference champions or four teams that are one-loss conference champions and an undefeated Notre Dame, guess what? Eye test is going to matter. How you look against inferior competition is going to matter. And especially if you don't have ranked teams on your schedule the rest of the way, aside from number 24 UCLA, who might not be ranked by the time they yeah. uh, by the time they play later this year, like you, you need to show the committee that you are playing and pasting inferior competition. Like, be this thing where they look bad against teams that aren't as good as they are and fresno state i'll give them the pass because as it turns out fresno state is incredible and a really good football team but aside you know stony brook like it shouldn't be 17-7 in the first half if if they come out flat against arizona i'm gonna have the same exact type of critique because the the thing is you should at your core be winning these games early it shouldn't take a 31 point second half for you to come out and and make the scoreline look pretty at the end. 
you should be have these games should be over a quarter and a half in if you're playing Stony Brook. You know, like you look at past Clemson teams, look at past Oklahoma teams, look at Alabama teams. Are any of them like aside from that one year Alabama had to like sweat it out with the Citadel for a half because they run the triple and like the triple is a genuinely hard offense to to defend? Who among these teams are giving them fits in the first half? Oklahoma beat Western Carolina 76 to 0 this year. Like what about that is is difficult or should be difficult for you? It shouldn't be. And that's really all it comes down to. They won second half was great, fine. But I would like to see, because I do think style points matter, I would like to see Oregon just come out of the gate firing and just put these teams on their behind early, and then no one has to worry about it. This conversation doesn't need to happen. Because eventually, the way the chaos is unfolding this season, Oregon could take a loss, they could even take two. But there's other teams around the country that could also take two. And so you need every argument in your favor, especially as a Pac-12 team that hasn't been in the playoff in some time, you need to be that team. Show it on beyond the shadow of a doubt. You're ready to be in the playoff. And, they, and that, that first half, they didn't show it. I, I agree. However, I think that a counter, it's not even a counter. I think that something that could help the other perspective on this is Florida, or is Florida State, is Fresno State beating UCLA. Because mm-hmm. you say, you know, Oregon really now only has UCLA on its schedule as a potential ranked champion or as a potential ranked opponent, but Fresno State's ranked, and Oregon already beat Fresno State. And yeah. this shows that that victory is a little bit better. And, and look, if Fresno State goes on to, beat, to win the Mountain West, that's even even better. And so, you know, it, it, it it's not great to not blow out Stony Brook in the first half. It really isn't. And, and I agree with you, but I think that I sit a little bit better, a little bit more comfortably knowing that the first two wins of the season are sustainable compared to what we've seen country, uh, nationwide, right? Yeah, Georgia Tech, like Georgia, uh, Clemson need to hold Georgia Tech on a fourth and fourth down to win their game last week. Mm-hmm. Tulsa almost beat Oklahoma State. Like that, Oklahoma State's not a competitor, but or is, is it? But this is a team in the Big Twelve that always has upsets. Oklahoma didn't look great last week. Um, Ohio State hasn't looked great as well, right? Like these are teams that Oregon's gonna be pitted against. Georgia has looked really good, but Alabama struggled against Florida, right? Like a close Florida loss or Oregon, even though they blew it out, an Oregon Stony Brook victory, but then Oregon also beating Fresno State. If Alabama goes on to lose, that could be a big dip. The fact that Florida almost beat Alabama could actually be a conversation piece in all of this. So there's a lot that this victory against Fresno State does, at least to this point where we sit mm-hmm. right now, because of that victory against UCLA. Um, and I, look, so, I think the Fresno State win, by the way, is going to age really, really well. Like, I think when we look at it at the end of the year, that might be a ten and two, maybe eleven and one Fresno State team that might be ranked in the top twenty. And if it's a top, if that's a top twenty team, that's a top right. twenty win, regardless of and when the week what, was. And that's what gives settles me a little bit about the Stony Brook game. It just does because because Oregon sort of proved what they needed to prove in the first two weeks of the season, right? And not having KT and not having Justin Flo against Ohio State feels like that will also be a point that the committee discusses if Oregon is indeed in the conversation because this is obviously the team of guys that need to be showcased if they're able to beat a top five, top ten, depending on where Ohio State ends team without their two arguably their best and their arguably mm-hmm. second best defender. Um, so, like you said, all these p- points need to be taken into account. Mm-hmm. And so, 
I'm not. I don't. I don't feel like the the Stony Brook victory was as, as egregious of an or as a, an underwhelming performance as you might perceive it to be. I, well, my but, only thing is it's it's a pa- it's been a pattern over the Cristobal era right. of playing up and down to your competition. I mean, that's if if that was a one off game, I'd be like, yo, whatever, like it's fine. But my only my only thing is is that shy of the Nevada game in 2019 when they beat Nevada like 68 70 to nothing or something like that, like. They have not looked great against inferior competition. Like their mind very clearly wanders a little bit in some of these games. And when you're going into Pac-12 play, knowing that inconsistency with focus is what concerns me if you want to be a playoff team because you can a, a, a 17-7 half against Stony Brook, like yeah, you can still get away with that. A bad half where you're not focused against Stanford is how you lose a playoff spot. And that, I think, is the reason that I am more concerned about a game like that is just the general issue of what it could mean if they catch the wrong team and and do that, you know? And they've done it in the past. I mean, think about, I think it was, what, 2018? They go down to Arizona and to Tucson and just get absolutely clapped by that Wildcats team. That wasn't a good Arizona team, mind you. You know, they no. go in. Yeah, Real like for Heisman, baby. Yep, but, but look, but they they have had games like that under Mario Cristobal where like they really frankly just they shouldn't have lost the games and they came out extremely like that Arizona State game um in the Rose Bowl year there's you know rumors out there that Arizona State had the book on what Oregon was going to do that game but the first half of that game regardless of if that's true or not they they were flat they didn't come out with enough energy and so like looking when you look at a team like Alabama, like they might, their focus and energy might wax and wane in the games themselves, but I haven't seen an Arizona coach, Nick Saban team or Nick Saban coach, Alabama team. I don't know how I got that mixed up. I haven't seen a Nick Saban coach, Alabama team in like three years come out flat, like at all. And that's the difference between a team that's a consistent national contender and a team that may be susceptible to dropping a game or two. And that's my only thing. I just have I, it. I see a game like that against Stony Brook. I know it was vanilla, but I just I wonder, given the historical context of what we know about this Oregon program the last three years, and go that makes me a little nervous about what might come if they're if they're not careful going into Pac-12 play. Yeah, I mean historically, Oregon is bound to lose in Pac-12 play. That's that's really what this is, right? Tell like at the end of the time. day. The, the end of the day, your cautiously optimistic approach is probably the best approach for all of us to take. Um, yeah. All right. So four teams with big don't. I, let, let's do it this way. Oregon State blows out Idaho. Fantastic for Oregon State. Super happy. First shutout victory since 2008 for the program. We love Chance Nolan getting good yep. looks, um, being consistent. So there's victory number one. Cal beats Sac State, lets them put up 30. Sac State is always a half-decent team um, in giving Pac-12 schools. So they always play Cal. Um, so Cal wins 42-30. Washington blows out Arkansas State 52-3. And Stanford beats a Vanderbilt team 41-23. to They let Vanderbilt put up 23 points. This is a Vanderbilt team that put up three points against Eastern Tennessee in a loss and barely beat Colorado State last week, who, beat to, who lost to Toledo, uh, who almost beat Oklahoma State. So I don't even know what to make about Vanderbilt um of those games Cal Stanford Washington and Oregon State none of those victories really mean too much for the conference they mean more to the individual programs um which one stands out the most to you of those four victories um I'll do like little bits on on each because something 
Cal's defense stood out to me. That defense is not the same as it's been in past years. Kwani Deng is injured, and he helmed that linebacker core. But I'm very curious to see. This is two games now between TCU and Sac State where that defense did not look like a trademark Wilcox defense. So that's something to watch, I think, going into uh, Pac-12 play. Oregon State, I think, was probably the most impressive win just because they went wire to wire. Chance Nolan is great efficient. He's pa- he's an 83% passer through two and a half weeks. And he they're probably 3-0 if they let him play that start against Purdue. Um, I Honestly, I think Oregon State might be an eight-win team this year. Like looking at the schedule and the rest of the Pac-12, I think Chance Nolan, he's got a little, he's got like a little Manziel-ish type of play in in him. Um, so I really, I like what he gives them. Um, Washington was the most surprising win because I don't know if anyone expected them to kind of just give up on that offense that they were running the first two weeks and just kind of change it over. Dylan Morris looked like a totally different quarterback in a, in a more spread concept offense. Kamari Pleasant and Sean McGrew got runs. It's pretty amazing what happens when you actually put your talented running backs on the field and utilize them a certain way. And it's amazing what a good offense can do to make your defense look better because now your defense isn't super gassed because they're on the field for 48 minutes out of the game and you go out and do what you're supposed to do. So um, those three games were impressive to me. Stanford, I'd like to see maybe handle Vanderbilt a little bit more, but you know what? It's a power five, power five game. And the Cardinals seem to have found something with Tanner McKee. Once again, it goes back to what on earth were you thinking putting Jack West in that game against Kansas state? Like, what were you seeing? Like, you know, what, what were you seeing in the quarterback competition over the summer that made you think, eh, maybe these guys are close. Like what? No, like, it's so obvious. This team is so much better with Tanner McKeon. So those, those are my thoughts for the four. I, I think, and you know, they're, they're, it's a positive fun- for all four. Yeah, absolutely. And what's funny about what you, more program wise, like we said in the conference, but what's funny about Tanner McKee is David Shaw, his track record recently with quarterbacks has been fantastic. Davis Mills playing for Houston yesterday on Sunday uh, proved that, right? I mean, the dude was great. And so it's very interesting that it took them, it didn't take them week one to figure it out, which is typically how it goes. Um, yeah, I, I, I would have liked them to, to not have allowed Vanderbilt 21 points in that one. So I, I'm with you on everything that you said. I'm very happy for, I mean, it's just, it, these are important wins for the program to get given what's been going on. And so I'm happy that at least those four teams were able to clean up um, and take care of business on Saturday. So the final game, and I've been putting this off on purpose because I have a feeling we're about to have a lengthy discussion about it is USC and Washington state. Mm-hmm. Washington state is up 14, nothing. Keaton Slovis gets hurt. He's in the parka. Um, there was a conversation about whether it was going to be Miller Moss. Was it going to be Jackson Dart? Miller Moss is the Alamany product um, who transferred modern day, did not play in the pandemic. He's fantastic. I saw him in high school. Um, and they gave the start to Jackson Dart, who is the lower rated recruited quarterback from Canyon Creek High School in Utah, which is, if you're familiar with Canyon Creek, this is a school that outputs better offensive and defensive linemen nationwide than almost anywhere. Like they are the feeder school for those positions. And they're the best school in Utah. Um, you so Jackson Dart comes in and and, and just plays a, a an incredible game. I mean, he looked like the best pack quarterback in the Pac-12, in my opinion. When he stepped up, like basically, it was you know what I'm just gonna go sling footballs around for three hours, and he did, and he was fantastic. Mm-hmm. It was great to watch. It, it felt like after what USC went through firing Clay Helton, the program was more energized. I mean. They have a former Oregon guy now as the interim. Cough, cough, maybe you hire him. I don't know. 
But, oh, Hovner with a head shake. We'll get into oh, I yeah. don't think you should hire him either, but I'm just showing Coach <laughs> Williams some love. Got to show yep. him some love. Um, oh, of course. So, the, I mean, look, USC offensively, I know, I mean, Drake London went down with a, with a minor injury. He looked, he, I mean, he was, he's probably the best wide receiver in the nation in my era. He's up there. He's definitely in the conversation when he's fully healthy and he looked like that until he went out. So, um, you know, Washington State is a disaster. Nick, the Nick Rolovich experiment is not working. Um, they ran a qu- quarterbacks that um, aren't even, uh, that aren't like, wouldn't probably wouldn't be playing at, at, upper echelon mm-hmm. power five schools um and yep. it, it it was bad it was I mean, max Borg is the only redeeming quality of that program right now and it, it like you said in in a in an offensive league you're gonna have to throw the ball and that's a, a school that is historically air raid right and so it, it's just tough to, to watch up and up in Pullman right now but um usc looks promising give me your thoughts on this game first and then we'll go into um how do we get usc to once again be back on track in this conference and also when can the nation just accept that at least for now it's Oregon's conference and let the, like the, let the PAC 12 image be associated with that program. Because I think that that really needs to be another step in this. Well, I, I think at this point there's, there's no choice. I think you're muted right? by the way. What? Oh, am I? He's talking, but no words are coming out. It's crazy. It's crazy. He's like, he's perfect at uh lip syncing is what we've told. We've been told about Andrew Hobner. Can you hear me now? Maybe it's on my end with uh with my airpods one second yeah because i'm registering sound on my mic um yeah i'm going over to the audio home i hear you now. Re- oh, okay got me yeah i got you no oh, that's weird yeah i just would anyway um here's my thing about usc and washington state and for that matter the image of this conference Right now, the Pac-12 has no choice. This is Oregon's conference. Like they're they're the top ranked team. They're the number. You know, they're in the top four right now. They're gonna be the team in this conference until they lose. And right now, they're holding it down for basically everyone. This is 2019 ACC football with Clemson and no other ranked team. I mean, that's pretty much what's going on right now. As for USC uh, in this game, it was the quintessential. And I'm glad they kept my theory of the new coach game alive where, you know, the new coach game is what it always is. First game after a coach gets fired, the interim always seems to win because there's new energy, everyone's jacked up, it's something different, it's something new, and, you know, the coach might do something different and that that's a switch up from the other guy and everybody's down for it, ready, it's cool, it's like, a, you know, brand new shiny car. And eventually you regress to the mean in most ways, but mo- for the most part, you win that first game. I love Jackson Dart. I think there is something scarily poetic about the idea that Keaton Slovis's career might end the way it began at USC, which was taking over for an injured JT Daniels. And I also think there's a very interesting parallel here too. If Jackson Dart like turns out to be like really nice, I think there is an interesting parallel that, you know, Clay Helton's original sin in 2016 was not starting Sam Darnold until like week three. And the idea if Jackson Dart is like that dude, that his coaching career, Clay Helton's coaching career may have been saved by starting Jackson Dart the way he should have started Sam Darnold is some very scary, poetic kind of stuff. Um, the thing I will say for this is this, I hang more on Washington state than I hang on USC. USC played great. They went down 14-0. They showed some stones. There was accountability. I think the biggest thing 
for USC that was a departure was players that got themselves in bad positions early were immediately taken out. Like Chris Steele picked up a penalty that I think was either an unsportsmanlike in the first quarter or something to that effect. And he was out the next play. I mean, they took him off the field. And so that is something where Clay Helton's programs, there was a hallmark of, we're just going to let these guys be themselves to their detriment in most cases. And it seemed like Dante Williams and the staff were saying, if you make a mistake, there's accountability. We are introducing accountability into this program again. And if you make a mistake, you're coming off or you act stupid, you're coming off. So I do credit them for that. This was an all out collapse by Washington state. I mean, maybe I wouldn't even say this is Kuganit because I feel like Kuganit revolves around like this happening with three minutes left in the fourth quarter. But this was an all-time collapse for Washington State because of the way that it happened. You know, Jaden Delora comes off the field. They say he's hurt, but then he comes back out to throw a pick on the very first play in the third or the fourth quarter. They put a walk-on in over the guy who had been competing for the number two spot the entire fall camp in Cameron Cooper. They they don't look good um, after U.S. Their adjustments, they're getting eaten up on defense, and there's just some level of discombobulation with this program right now that Nick Rolovich has that it's just not, it's not good. It's not acceptable. Um, And I do think that there are shades of Clay Helton and Nick Rolovich because you talk about a lack of accountability that occurred at USC. It seems like there's a similar lack of accountability in Pullman that A, starts with their head coach and B, seeps down into the players. You know, they had a, they had Abe Lucas out there in the postgame saying the difference between Leach and, and Rolovich is one was a dictator, but he respected Leach being a dictator, but Rolovich is a player's coach. Well, guess what, man? Like sometimes it's required in this sport that your coach has a little bit of disciplinary in, in him. And if Nick Rolovich is just letting everybody get away with everything and there's no accountability because that's who Nick Rolovich is. He's not Nick a player Rolovich- coach then. he's If he's yeah. not out there holding his players account. See, when you said that, I was... But player, like, but players coach too. I think players nowadays. He's not somebody that he's our guy. Go out. He's not somebody that players will go out and win war for. He's not Mario Cristobal is a coach that players will go out yes. and go to war for. Yes, I agree right? with and you. That's there. what. That's a player's coach. Yeah, Clay so, is not that kind of coach. No, Urban Meyer was that kind of coach in, in college. Well, the issue, the issue for both those guys is that they let they were when when they sit when players say players coach, what that means to me as someone who's not in that locker room means a guy who's deferential to his players, which you can't be when you're a head coach. And I think the issue up in Washington State right now is a lack of accountability. It's a lack of structure and cohesion. And that says more. This loss says so much more about Washington State than the win does about USC because we're going to learn plenty about USC in the next few weeks. And it wasn't learned here. What we learned here is that Nick Rolovich is increasingly making a case why on the football merits alone, he probably should not be the guy going forward. He's two and five. He's one and four in Pac-12 play. The losses that that he's had this season have been borderline embarrassing. The one win he's had has come over an FCS program. So kudos to him. At least he can beat an FCS program in this freaking conference. Yeah. Yeah, but like aside, but aside from that, you lost to Utah State in completely embarrassing, collapsing fashion, and then you lost this game in collapsing, embarrassing fashion, and it's making this for Washington State fans not a very fun experience anymore. And I think that's the most difficult thing for a lot of these guys to have to swallow is that this is making this tough to watch. 
Um, but credit to USC. They took advantage. They did what they needed to do. I love Jackson Dart. If this is what he looks like when there's tape out on him going forward, I am all in on the Jackson Dart experience because he is he's a lot of fun, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, all right. Let's end with this. Uh, so USC is going to go through a transition. They need to go through a transition. They also need some empathy from the the, the waning fan base because USC is a project. The only way that USC, in my opinion, now there are bullet points to this, but the, the baseline is reestablishing the recruiting foothold in their own backyard. Because right now, they're losing to Oregon and Washington. They're losing to SEC schools. They're losing to Ohio State and to Wisconsin and to uh, Maryland. And like they're losing to all these other schools that have absolutely no business being in, in, in this part of the region, right? Bryce Young. USC had a chance at Bryce Young, went to Alabama. USC had a price had a had a chance at DJU, went to Clemson. We could go through the running backs. We could go CJ Verdell was on USC's radar. He's at Oregon, right? Like we could go through the, the Eno Benjamin who went to Arizona State. Jaden Daniels, by the way, was chose Arizona State over mm-hmm. USC. I mean, we again the list goes on and on and on. Um and, and uh, it, it feels like it, they need a person that's not necessarily go- Mike Bone is not going to hire somebody who's volatile, right? Urban Meyer is not going to be hired by US by a Mike Bone um, run USC athletics department because my, it's very clear to me that Mike Bone wants to forget about everything that has happened with Reggie Bush, forget about everything that has happened with Steve Sarkeesian and what happened at the end of his tenure, and really build a wholesome foundation for this program that it has been lacking for so long. People in Cal and LA don't care about USC football. You said earlier, right, that um, the matriculation happens for losing to FCS programs in terms of stadiums not being full, and then recruits want to go to where there are full stadiums. The Coliseum is empty by halftime, right? Like yep. you cover games at USC, it, it, it's empty by halftime. Student kids don't want to go play there. They're, they're playing in, in a half-empty, one hundred twenty thousand person stadium, and twenty-five percent of the fans that do stay are for the other team, anyways. And mm-hmm. so. It's not. It's not a place where where student athletes are going to be beloved like they are in Eugene, Oregon, or Pullman, Washington, or even in Berkeley, right? Or in or in Utah, or if you go out out to the rural parts of the Midwest in Columbia, Missouri, or in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So that the mark the local marketing needs to be better because guess what? The new generation of football players doesn't remember Reggie Bush. They don't remember mm-hmm. USC Tech like Mark Sanchez and Vince Young. They don't remember these print like when everybody says college football is more fun with Nebraska winning and USC winning. The kids who consume college football and are the next generation of college football have no recollection of these teams even being close to dominant of Miami yeah. and Natalia, right? Like they don't care. They care about Ohio state. They care about Alabama. They care about Clemson. They care about Oregon. They care about Michigan. Like they care about these programs that have been successful in recent memory because those are the perennials that they have the associations with. Those are who they want to go to. So this whole USC, you know, the conference's perception, well, these kids don't know that USC was a, a successful. They know of it because we talk about it, but they never, mm-hmm. they don't have an investment because they never watched it. And so yes. USC needs to do a better job marketing themselves as not necessarily the perennial in the, in the Pac-12, but at least make themselves the perennial in Southern California. Make them the perennial in the region that they operate in. Get these kids back to the program. Get a coach that the kids want to go out there and win for every week. And get a coach that's okay with this being a three- to four-year process because it's going to take some time. It's not going to happen next year. This is a rebuilding situation. It's the only way that USC is going to get back on track, in my opinion. Well, and building the trenches of that program is going to take two years, minimum. 
and you win in the trenches. So rebuilding that offensive line is going to take a while. This is not a program a coach can come in and just immediately win the way people expect them to come in and immediately win. Um, I think the biggest thing for USC is not it's it's finding a coach that's to come in and be a legitimate competitor. And and that's why I kind of don't know about some of the retread hires. And we talk about head coaches, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, Bill O'Brien or Urban or Stoops. I don't think that's what you need. I think you need to risk it a little bit because safety is what got you, Clay Helton. You know, say what you want about Lane Kiffin and him kind of flaming out in the fashion that he did. Lane Kiffin was a fascinating hire. And you know what? Lane Kiffin... As time has gone on, I think he was probably a little young for that role. And he himself has even said between that and the Raiders, like he just, he wasn't mentally ready for it. Some of these younger cats are maybe a little different than Lane, but even still, I want to see a young guy there. I, I think you need to, I think you need to really go out and swing on a dude who's going to come in and he's, and frankly, he's got to be from the South. You need a dude that's going to go into Georgia, that's going to go into Texas, that's going to go into Florida and get those interior linemen because that's how Mario is building his program right now. How many California kids are on that offensive line right now? There's not many. You know, he built Forsyth and Walk into solid guys that can contribute as Oregon guys because him and Mirabal are really good when it comes to being able to develop some of these linemen. But like, some of the dudes they're pulling Kelvin banks in this most recent class, a Texas kid, you know, they pulled in a couple of cats from Mississippi, Jason Jones from Alabama. Like these dudes are not guys that are coming from the California pipeline. You know, you're not winning with California O-linemen. You got to go win with guys from the South. And so I think if, if you're USC, you need a guy who's got a little bit of an SEC mentality when it comes to recruiting to be able to fight tooth and nail with Mario on these things. Because if we're going to take it back to the macro thing, the thing with a lot of these Pac-12 coaches, there's a certain way of doing it here, you know, that was established between guys like Shaw, Peterson, and Chip when Chip was in his first tenure at Oregon that essentially boiled down to we're not going to recruit dirty. And Mario came in and came from Alabama and it rubbed a lot of coaches the wrong way when you heard it kind of through the industry grapevine when he showed up, they were really pissed because they were like, this guy is upsetting the way that we do things. And Mario was like, I don't care. This is how we recruited Alabama and we win. So get on the train or lose. And now all of a sudden you're seeing the coaches that are trying to do what Mario's doing actually recruit to the level. USC is one of those programs because they took Dante Williams who worked with Mario. Like, and that's, and they are the only people that are keeping pace, you know, Arizona State is doing the same thing. They're just recruiting in a much more stupid 1970s Southwestern Conference <laughs> method. But like, but all of the other programs, like Chris Peterson in Washington and Jimmy Lake, like they've got their OKG. This is how we do this. And guess what? They're getting pasted in recruiting, and they've been getting pasted in recruiting. And you're not winning with that kind of talent anymore. So if, if USC is smart, they're gonna find a young, hungry, up-and-coming guy who's not named Kendall Bryles and bring him to USC. And basically say, we're going to take the risk on you. If we lose, what is the worst that happens here? If you lose, you just start over again. But if you tie it to an old guy who doesn't know NIL, who doesn't know the transfer portal, everyone's talking about Urban. Urban hasn't coached college football since 2018. That's a really big 
three-year period in terms of transfers and NIL and how this game is different in terms of recruiting and the offseason and the next crop of kids coming up, that's a huge three years to be out of the game for. And so I don't know if Urban would come in and all of a sudden be the guy he's always been. There's no idea. You have no idea that that's possible. So I, go swing for the fences. Go take a risk. Make it work. That's all that I know. That NIL uh, perspective is interesting because if, if you think about it, USC should be in the best position to market themselves to athletes because of, of the market that they're in, right? Yep. If, if kids are getting six and seven figure deals in, in BF nowhere, why are like you should be able to go and market your school to these kids with that idea in mind that they're going to supersede the revenue that kids in small markets are, are driving. And, and that should be, you're right. They need, they need an innovative thinker. You know, what's funny when you said they need somebody who's going to, you know, come in and change the culture. And when Mario Cristobal came in and all the other coaches, that narrative was exactly the same narrative. Chip Kelly, exactly the same narrative when he came to Oregon. Yep. And, and that's what happened everybody else copied him. And now it's the gold standard for college football. And he even said it at UCLA. Like now every, I, everywhere I go, I'm, I'm seeing parallels to myself because he's it pissed everybody off. And then they realize, well, if you can't beat him, you join him. And, right. and, and it, it's happening with Cristobal right now. It's the same exact deal. So I think you nailed it with that. Um, all right. Well, that, that, that's an hour on the dot. You, you Any other final thoughts here? Um, we'll be back at the end of the week for our uh, our preview of the upcoming week of Pac-12 slated games. But um, overall disappointing, as usual, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, I mean, how, how should we get out of here, Mr. Hobner? Get it together, Pac-12. We love you. We love you too much for you to be doing this to us. That's Lovely my bad for you. I mean, look, man. Is it, do you do you take any solace in knowing at least you cover the best the the only like somewhat relevant team in the conference? Because if you were stuck, and now every shouts out to all your colleagues at the other stations covering these schools, but it, it could be worse from a personal it could be level worse. if you were it Andrew Hobner, right? Yeah, oh, it absolutely could be worse. But come on, Pac twelve, come on, Pac twelve. I'm not I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. All right. Well, we will try to get our feeling back in our and, and get the serotonin and melatonin and whatever else we're supposed to have raised <laughs> in the next few days um, as we get ready for the upcoming slate of games. We'll be back at the end of the week for that one. Uh, special thanks to Believe in uh, the Believe Podcast Network for making sure that we are up and disseminated appropriate appropriately. No matter how you're listening or where you're listening to the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe across all listening platforms. For Andrew Hobner, this is Jonathan Rifkind. We will be back at the end of the week. This has been Believe in the Pack. 12 on the Believe Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.